0: I think leadership will be defined by your ability to manage through multiple crises at once. You need to be the celebrant of your community, not the celebrity. I'm Simon Mannering and this is Win the Day with James Whittaker.
1: You're listening to Win the Day with James Whittaker. What we doing live? Echoes in eternity, broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Hey winners, welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode it comes from Nelson Mandela and says, Vision without action is merely a dream action without vision is merely passing time, but vision with action can change the world. Our guest today is Simon Mannering, a brand futurist, global keynote speaker, and New York Times bestselling author. Simon's superpower is showing companies how to drive business growth and increase profit by scaling their positive impact. He is the founder and CEO of We First, a brand consultancy that has helped companies like Sony, The Coffee Bean, Timberland, and Tom's to accelerate their growth and impact. Simon's latest book sitting in front of us right now, Lead with We, was voted the McKinsey top business bestseller on workplace and culture. His previous book, We First, is also a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller and was named the best business marketing book of the year. Simon has been named one of the top keynote speakers in the world, is a regular columnist for Forbes, and in 2015 was a finalist for Global Australian of the Year. In this episode, we're going to talk about the importance of collective purpose and the role of business in solving the world's big challenges, what the Lead with We formula is and how to apply it to accelerate and scale your company's growth and impact, the importance of purpose-driven messaging and storytelling and how it can be lived by every layer of your business and how you can become the leader we all need in today's fast-paced digital world. Before we begin, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So, there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day. Share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with Simon Mannering. Simon, great to see you, mate. Thanks great, for coming on the show. Great to see you and great to hear a familiar accent there. It's good, isn't it? It's right? just nice. We're gonna understand each other. No one else will. <laughs> but you and I, we got it. I have a question in the rocket round that always says what's one thing you've learned about failure, and the Americans just don't understand it. So I always right. have to say failure to, failure. to put it out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: When I'm always on the phone with somebody, I'm always sort of I adjust my accent so I'm understood for sure. And then you get back to Sydney Airport and everyone's like, I'm sorry. What's going on with your accent? So you can't win either way, mate. You can't win either way. Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, give us a bit of a sense of, of where you grew up and what career path you naturally gravitated toward.
0: Mate, I'm like any other Aussie. I grew up in Sydney, spent a lot of time on the beaches, went to university, and I think a lot of Australians we have this sort of wanderlust. We wonder what's going on else in other places around the world. You know, you feel like you're so far removed geographically or in other ways that you think, maybe I want to give it a go overseas. So I spent some time in Japan and then France, and then, you know, I was in the advertising world and had a, a great sort of stint in London, as a lot of us Aussies do, much to the English, you know, chagrin, uh, shall we say. Taking and all the jobs. Taking all the jobs. Or something. <laughs> and then um, came over to the States to work on Nike at their ad agency, Wyden & Kennedy. So spent several years doing that, writing campaigns for the fancy athletes out there. And then moved down to LA 22 years ago to become worldwide creative director on Motorola and help launch things like the the Razor Phone, which was a big deal back in the day. But then for the last 13 years, I've had my own company called We First, because all the advertising experience that I had taught me that you can actually build brand movements. You can actually mobilize everyone from your suppliers to your employees to your customers to build your business with you. And I thought, what if we took that expertise and those skills and applied it to a business of any size, and more importantly, a business that's doing good because that would allow you to drive your growth by scaling your impact because the impact is really what motivates people to be part of your brand. So for the last 13 years, we've done that from t- for tiny startups
1: through to sort of private equity backed companies through to some of the biggest companies in the world. And how can people focus on impact if there's so much craziness going on in the world or they feel like they haven't got their own things together in, the- in their own life?
0: You know, I think today, you know, here in 2023, it's more disorientating than ever. I mean, you look at the headlines every day and it's pretty scary. And that can sort of destabilize your sense of confidence in the future. You hear talk of inflation and a recession, all these different things. And that can be sort of debilitating. But I think as an entrepreneur, we all sort of... We have selectively chosen to have a positive mindset, to get up every day, to build a a business with our bare hands. And so when you think about the reality of of the marketplace that we're in, consider this. Every day, your employees, your customers, your investors are sitting there going, wow, our future looks Pretty, pretty rotten in some ways. And the market forces are now rewarding companies that you know, are doing good. People want to buy for, work, buy from, work for, and invest in companies that are course correcting the future. Mm. And so it's not sort of Pollyanna, hey, let's go and make the future a better place. It's like, how do we leverage today's market forces so that we can scale our impact in ways that will build our business? And it's, even, you know, it's really fulfilling on a personal level at the same time. Mm.
1: Who are some examples of companies that are doing it really well? At the moment. There's many companies. Some you
0: know, some that you don't know. I mean, I think there are startups, for example, like the Timberlands and the Virgins of the world that have now become household names that really have sort of built their brand on the strength of their impact on the environment, whatever it might be. There are new startups today, for example, like Air Company in New York, which is actually, oddly enough, one of the co-founders is an Australian, but they're pulling carbon out of the air and making award-winning vodka and perfume and now carbon neutral jet fuel, which major American airlines are now coming on board with. And that's really looking at this marketplace um, as you know opportunities in disguise. And then there are very, very large corporations out there, the Unilevers of the world and on That are publicly traded companies or the Patagonias of the world that are privately held that really have demonstrated for a long time that you can commit to doing good and build a rapidly growing business. So it really applies to all different levels of business. But I will say one thing, all of us as entrepreneurs, and I've been one for 13 years myself, you've got to ask yourself, why are you in business? Is it just to make money? you know is it profit you know for any sake at the cost of anything or do you actually want to build a business that's going to give you fulfillment on the inside and i think you know as a dad as well as being an entrepreneur i look at it and my daughter's future and i say hey I would actually love to be part of a business that is healthy, it gives me an income, it provides for my future, but I'm also being responsible to that future as well, not only in my own interest, but in the interest of my family and others. Mm. There's been a lot of chatter recently around this idea of the four-day work week. Sure. Have you done
1: any research or seen any insights on that? I
0: wistfully think about that. I think in the same way, <laughs>
1: hybrid work,
0: remote work, you know, and now the four-day work week, and you know, a big experiment in the UK, which at different times, depending on what you read, they say it does work and it doesn't work. I think the the larger point to take away is that the work-life balance is increasingly important, not just to a company, but to its employees to keep that talent that makes your company possible. So you have to consider different versions of that. That might be hybrid work, it might be remote work, or it might be a four-day work week. There are markets in Northern Europe and also places like the UK where it seems to be proving out. That said, at the same time, you know, It's a challenge with remote work, and if you're losing a day, arguably 20% of the productive times of your employees, can you as an entrepreneur, as a boss, as someone who's managing payroll, can you live with that, and can you sort of stress test it long enough to see whether it actually serves the business or hurts the business? We're still five days a week at my company, WeFirst, but we actually, you know, work remotely and then we come in once every two weeks to see each other. So I think it's a case by case, but I think it's something everyone should
1: consider. Yeah. It sounds like if it's a lot more balanced to begin with, then that's going to make it far less urgent in terms of moving to a four day work week.
0: I think so. I think the point of departure for entrepreneurs and, you know, I, I used to be a corporate guy for a long time. We were lucky to have a job. You go to work. You work your butt off, you're lucky to have a job, you hope you didn't get fired, you go home, you get your paycheck, hallelujah, You go and have a beer on a Friday afternoon. Um, But now the centre of gravity has moved to the employee, not just because it was out of balance, but because after COVID, I mean, I think so many people were weary and frightened and anxious about the future, and suddenly the responsibility, which should have always been there, was thrust onto us as business owners to say, hey, how are you taking care of your people in these conditions? And the interesting thing about that is, COVID has subsided to some degree, but then we've had all these other shockwaves, you know, global supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine. It seems like the hits keep coming. And I think that's going to be true of the future forevermore moving forward because of climate, because of so many issues. In which case, you have to consider a four-day work week or that work-life balance just to make sure the health and well-being of your employees is in
1: place. Mm -hmm. It was interesting when the Australian bushfires started. Mm. I was in Australia around the around the time on on holiday, not much was happening in Queensland with the bushfires sure. because it was a lot further south. Everyone was talking at the time that, look, how can the world get any worse than what's happened here? And then COVID hit. Like, it's a great reminder that the world is getting faster and faster. Yeah. There's all these big things that can literally change the world pretty much overnight. That How you adapt to that and how you manage that and your yeah. lens to a growth mindset dictates how you will perform and succeed and survive.
0: Yeah. The, the, the growth mindset is now increasingly a function of how you can be, what I like to say, a gyroscope. You know that you see those guys with the steady cams almost on, you know, movie sets that no matter which way they move, the camera stays steady. You've got to be the same thing as a business owner. You've got to absorb the shocks. You've got to be a shock absorber that insulates your business, your employees, your customers, your bottom line from all of these different shock waves. Mm-hmm. And I characterize leadership because I, I'm lucky enough to get to speak to that in a lot of sort of conferences and so on. I think leadership will be defined by your ability to manage through multiple crises at once. And we've all done it. It's not like this is a new thing. The last two and a half years, we've had all of these consecutive crises, especially here in the states. You know, we had the Black Lives Matter you know um, movement in response to the murder of George Floyd. We had Ukraine. We have you know inflation. We have recession. We have global supply chain. We had COVID, all the variants, all at once. And we all had to keep our businesses going. And so we've already been doing it. But rather than think that, hey, we've got to get back to how things were, where everything was normal and the exception to the rule was a crisis, we've got to accept that we're going to be in a constant state of crisis and how are we going to hold that center?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What was an average day look like for you in your
0: advertising days? Gosh, in my advertising days, I mean, I was lucky enough to work in different markets around the world. And I would say- that the peak of it was working at Wyden & Kennedy, Nike's ad agency. And it was an interesting environment because everyone um, has really aspired to do be very good at what they do. And what I'm really saying is it was a very competitive place. <laughs> and, uh, you know – The account guy or girl would come in and say, hey, here's a brief for a new shoe or for the basketball shoe or whatever it might be. Throw it down to the desk and say, do something cool. (laughs) And in each case, there'd be writers and art directors. And on each project, you'd have a different art director. And you'd probably have maybe four or five projects at once. So you'd be rotating through different art directors and they'd have different writers on a number of different projects all at once and were all pitted against each other for the best work. Mm. So it was constantly relentlessly competitive on multiple fronts at once. And as you can only imagine, when you sit down to do a Nike commercial, um, you've got to come up with an idea that nobody's ever thought of. And Nike has been doing ads for 25 plus years, Adidas, Asics, everybody. So it's quite the challenge to come up with something that's not only new But really extraordinary as well. So it was quite the thing. So the average day looked like calm exterior, mild panic on the inside, (laughs) several cups of coffee, late night work, and just being... You know, lucky enough to be amongst some of the most inspiring creative people I've ever met in my
1: life. What about the role of emotion in, in storytelling? Trying to yeah, reach sure. in and, and connect with that emotion. How important is that? Yeah. A- and An example of what I'm talking about that is, I remember the Lance Armstrong ad. Sure. A lot of people thought that he was a doper and there was a Nike mm-hmm. commercial yeah. that came what am out. I,
0: what am I on? I'm on my bike X amount of
1: hours a day yeah. and so on. And he said, I'm not on my bike for them. They can think whatever they want or they can say whatever they want. I'm not on my bike for them and it shows yeah. all the people who have cancer and recovering sure. at the same time. Phenomenal ad. Heavily emotional. Yeah,
0: heavily emotional and obviously his career came unstuck in various ways. Um, But emotion, we are all still human beings sitting around a campfire telling stories. I don't care about digital, social, blockchain, AI, GBT4, you know, whatever it might be. We all have to make that fundamental emotional connection. And your business, if you're a solopreneur sitting at your kitchen table, or whether you've got 20 employees or 100 employees, you're a multimillion dollar company, turns on the fact as to whether someone will sit down on their computer, or in a store, and instead of putting in sneakers, they put in Nike. Or instead of putting in cars, they put in Tesla. And the only way you get to win that consideration set is if you've made an emotional connection to that person. There is something about how that company shows up in the world, or its values and how they align with your values, or something you did that landed with them, or an experience of their product that stayed with you that made an emotional connection, so you self-select to choose their brand over others. And that is timeless. When someone's sitting at a strip mall, and they've got eight different restaurants to choose from to spend their 12 bucks for lunch or whatever, who do they go to? They go to the one that means something to them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times these days, technology means that entrepreneurs allow the tail to wag the dog. Mm -hmm. What am I doing on TikTok? What am I doing on Snapchat? What am I doing on whatever, as opposed to how can I make an emotional connection to
1: someone? Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. Was there a particular day in your advertising career where you realized that this is not the path for me?
0: Yeah, there was. There was. I mean, you know, like a lot of Aussies, as I said, you go around the world and you've got sort of ambitions to sort of test yourself against others. And I was lucky enough to kind of work at places like Saatchi and Saatchi in London and Charlotte Street, which is sort of a thing over there and then widen over here in the States. And then I came down and had a big job in terms of Motorola, but something was irking me. I was a Father in my late 30s, I had a first young child, um, and I wasn't happy, and I didn't know why. And It's really hard when you're a dad or a mother, and you're working your butt off, and you're trying to provide for your family, and you're not happy inside, and you don't know why, because you're still on the hook to put food on the table, yet personally, you're not You know, surviving is the way you'd like to, and so I went out and I was freelance for six years, and I was kind of like the cleaner from Pulp Fiction. I'd be one of the guys they call (laughs) at the last minute to really sort out a brand when they're in trouble, and I did that. You know, I was busy for very busy for six years, Um, but then I even found then I was starting to feel disillusioned with it. I'd worked at a lot of the name places in the states, and it's such a privilege, but at the same time, you weren't feeling challenged anymore. And then I walked into my kitchen one day here in Los Angeles, not far from the studio here, and there was an answering machine on the table, which shows you that I'm a little bit older than some of the people listening to this podcast. Um, and there was uh, five messages on the answering machine. First one from my mom in Sydney calling because it's you know the time difference. She was calling in the middle of the night and she was calling loudly down the phone to try and reach me in my bedroom because the, the answering machine was in the kitchen. And she's saying, Simon, pick up the phone, wake up, pick up the phone, another message. Simon, pick up the phone, please pick up the phone, you know, beep, Uh, my sister yelling down the phone, trying to wake me up. Fourth message, my mother really yelling down the phone, trying to wake me up and then beep again and final message, Simon, dad died. He was calling to say goodbye. Call us when you wake up. And, you know, I hadn't seen my dad for five years because I've been running around being a dad on the other side of the world or whatever. Um, And he'd been sick for a long time and i think those words wake up took on a profundity to me that i don't even think she intended she was just like wake up and we talked and i went and did the part of the eulogy in uh in australia but i realized i i was unhappy or i wasn't feeling challenged anymore professionally and then this was really destabilized me personally and i tell you you know for the first time in my damn life i got out of my own way i was so at sea with being professionally and personally destabilized that i couldn't Make sense of it. I couldn't take control of it. I couldn't write a list about what to do next. I couldn't run into my head and rationally make myself feel safe by thinking it through. I was just lost. I was, you know, first time probably in my life, I was just at sea. And two weeks later, you know, I happened to read a speech that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum that year where he said, Hey, the global economic meltdowns just happened. The private sector is creating a lot of the problems. They're on the hook for fixing those problems. In fact, they're better equipped than anybody else to make a difference through business. So you got to do more. And I think in hindsight, I was looking for some meaning in my life. Like I'm the classic self-important ad guy that was running around trying to get awards and so on, and I wasn't finding fulfillment in it. And I think when I look back now, I was looking for more meaning in my life. I wanted to be in business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be independent. But I wanted to do something that was going to make me feel good about who I am and the role I'm playing in the world. And so I spent three years writing my first book, We First, that came out and did well. And it was about the shift from me first capitalism to we first capitalism. So it was that moment. It was that it wasn't planning. I wasn't a smart, cool guy who wanted to do good and and use business to that end. I was just a self important dad who
1: wasn't happy, who didn't know what was going on, and then life came along and slapped me in the side of the head. Mm, Obviously a a horrible experience, but so many people go through life never getting a realization like that, never waking up from the life that they're living, someone else's life, or certainly not a life that's their own.
0: Yeah. I mean, for your listeners, you know, I cannot tell you the work that you can do on what your personal purpose is and then how you can bring that to life inside your business could not be more important. And I'll tell you why. I think up till that point, I was always looking at what someone else was doing, or I was wondering what else I should be doing, or looking at that person say, making more money and saying, God, I should be doing that. And then you're, you know, you're churning, you're having these dialogues inside your head, and you're really kind of takes a lot of energy and you're hiding it from everyone. But it was a really, you can spin out on all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think when I committed to doing something that was meaningful to me, the, I created alignment between who I am and what I do. And when you do that, two things happen. You become bloody good at what you're doing because you're leaning into your innate gifts and your values and there's synergy between that and you show up so authentically and and things work out much more effectively. But mo- or even more importantly, you stop worrying about everybody else and you stop wasting all of that energy that you spin around, you know, like, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? You're having the conversation, had a bad day and it's all spinning around in your head and you're always sort of either got envy or something else about somebody else. And it all just drops away. And it's kind of like you suddenly you stand your own ground. You hold center for yourself. And then you can move forward in life much more confidently. That doesn't mean you don't have all the entrepreneurial challenges and so on. But the energy you save and the energy it gives you in a clear and aligned direction is incredibly powerful.
1: What about the benefit of the opportunity you attract? Did you feel like when you sure. walked in, you sort of stepped into those shoes for the first time, the yeah. opportunity came to you rather than you needing to chase it in many ways?
0: Oh, uh, i got to tell you, and I, this is, I'm sure you've heard it from others, but when you actually kind of lean into those moments by accident like me or consciously, w- weird things happen. Mm. You know, th- people show up in your lives. Opportunities present themselves to the point that you're like, this is a bit spooky, <laughs> Like you, it seems like, it's almost like you're manifesting something just because there's so much integrity behind your intent, what you're trying to do. It's almost like, and I, you know... You're, you're signalling the universe that this is what I would love to see happen. And these things fall into place. And it, it gets to the point where you're, it's always a game of a joke with my wife. She was like, this is so strange, this serendipity that's happening. And then it comes and goes, depending on what happens, you're like, damn, how do I get that back? That was so cool. What have I done? What am I doing wrong? And it doesn't last forever. And you have it at different times, but um, the, it's night and day, the difference between living an inauthentic or non-aligned life on behalf of somebody else or just because you haven't done the work on yourself and really getting that alignment and putting it
1: to work for your business. I feel like when you haven't done the work for yourself, overwhelm Mm. creeps through and then it's hard to see straight. Shaheen who um, connected us, an amazing guy, shout out Shaheen. He spoke about when he came on the show that overwhelm is the death of flow. And Mm. I found in my own life, just like you did, when you create that alignment between life and business, the opportunities show up, you don't get so much of that clutter that's occupying your mind. In fact, you're so busy focused on opportunity and productivity and the importance and prioritization of balance that great things happen and you feel like you can maintain it a lot better and thus make considerable gain over the long term. It's
0: so true. We as entrepreneurs- just we're spent all the time hmm. We we leave it on the field. We're in the arena. We almost pride ourselves on working so hard and everyone else is working so hard. It just spins out of control. Um, but actually, uh, you know, I'll share something with you to your point about restoration and balance. At the end of last year, I was pretty tired after launching a new book and just everything that COVID took out of all of us. And I talk a lot about, you know, our responsibility to the planet and the environment and, and our future. And I thought what I wanted to deepen my relationship with the natural world. And so I went and spent two and a half weeks at the sacred headwaters of the Amazon with uh, three different indigenous tribes through an amazing organization called the Pachamama Alliance. And I'll share with you, when you leave your home base, when you leave your computer, when you leave email, when you leave the news headlines, you go to another culture, completely foreign to you, you then go into the most biodiverse place on earth, and then you are alone And you have time to really reflect and experience it in a very visceral way, swimming in the Amazon and being, and it's an, you know, it's an extreme example. The amount, the experience of flow you have is absolutely extraordinary. Mm. It's like all of as they call it, like these downloads start happening when you have new ideas and solutions to issues that you hadn't solved before and so on. And it's almost because you've stripped away everything, this noise, this static in your life, and you've also enhanced that flow by being in a very very dense natural environment, a very pure natural environment. So I think about flow both in the normal business context, in the cities that we live in and so on, but I just had a direct experience of plugging into the natural mainframe and it was extraordinary. So my advice to anybody would be, maybe you like the mountains, maybe you like to hike, maybe you like to surf, maybe you like the beach, whatever it is, as much as you love your business. Don't rob yourself of time in nature because I think it's a really powerful way to give yourself, connect to the flow that will
1: add so much value to your business. Mm. You know, I have a lot of high-level business leaders and mm-hmm. clients who travel around the world specifically looking for inspiration at least once right. a, at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Their goal is to just go and wherever it takes them. Yep. Maybe it's off the grid. Maybe they stay on the grid, um, but coming back and feeling inspired and experiencing what you yeah. what you mentioned there. Uh, a question I wanted to throw in for you: You yeah. mentioned that big transition that you had from mm. moving away from your ad exec days. Yeah. Did you feel like deep down there was always a voice calling for you that you just hadn't been listening?
0: I don't know. I think hindsight is always gives you a lot of clarity you didn't have on the way through. But um, I was always a values based person. Like, I went through law school at Sydney Uni. My dad was a lawyer before he was unwell. And I think there's always a dialogue, an implicit dialogue around values. Also, being an Australian, you always hear Australians say, Oh, g'day, mate. How are you doing? And yes, there's the tall poppy syndrome where they cut you down to size. But at its heart, it's like, we're all good, mate. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're a good person. I'm a good person. We're all, we all have value and i think that is part of who i am and i think i was living out different versions of success winning shiny statues in the ad thing ad world being on the cool account like nike or being the important guy running a, a big piece of business like motorola when really i'm a, just a i'm a guy who gives a shit quite honestly mm-hmm. i care about other people i see a problem where I see people being treated poorly and it actually affects me and I don't like that. And But I think I'd written that part of me out of me because we had to go out there and slay dragons as business people and entrepreneurs and it's dog eat dog and you had to compete and all that stuff. But I think when you allow who you truly are, if you can start wearing who you are on the inside, on the outside, and you can bring that to life in your business, I think it makes all the difference. Mm.
1: What's the problem that you wanted to solve at We First and why did it fall on your shoulders to do it?
0: The problem I saw was this that I, I really looked at business and capitalism and the way it was being practiced around the world, like so many others in 2007, 2008. I don't know if people recall, but people lost their homes, healthcare, their hopes. It happened in the States and then Greece and Iceland and and then the Gulf States. It was a really knock-on effect around the world and everyone got really shafted, as we'd say in Australia. <laughs> um, and I just thought it's not fair. And I asked myself, what is the root problem here? In a way that's accessible to people, because what you learn on working on things you know in advertising, you've got to make communications very simple and very clear. And I really identified that there was a me first mentality at the heart of business, but it was coming at the cost of things that are worth far more than money, you know people's lives and health hopes and so on. And I thought, well, what's the antidote to that? what's a, what's a way to start communicating this? that's accessible. Um, but also provocative in terms of doing business differently. And so I introduced this term, we first. And all I remember back in 2010, 2011, people would kind of do a double clutch. They'd be like, oh, we first. Don't you mean me first? Like they knew what <laughs> me first It's in the vernacular, me first. I He's, you know, but they never really heard of we first. And all it means is all of us working together in service of everybody's well being, like prioritizing collective well being. And the only reason that's important to me is because. If the whole falls apart, the parts can't thrive. If our planet, if our environment falls apart, society and business can't thrive. And so we need to serve the collective. We need to make sure the whole is okay so that we can all do well within it. And so, uh, you know, I distilled it down to me first versus we first and spent the next sort of, you know, 10 years really working inside companies of all sizes to help them understand how that's actually a growth driver and the first chapter of the bu- the book years ago you know was a first book was you know the future of profit is purpose and here we are 10 12 years later and every company is falling over themselves mm-hmm. telling you about their purpose and what they're doing and um, that's because the conditions we've created have got worse and we need that but also you know the market forces are rewarding companies that are doing that mm-hmm. so this is all about growth but thankfully, it's all about having impact at the same time.
1: Yeah, you're doing great work. So I'm amazed actually at how quickly that transition has. Obviously, there's a few slow-moving dinosaurs sure. that, that sure. don't want a piece of that, but it's it's really inspiring to see. Uh, you've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world with the work mm. that you're doing. Is there a particular client transformation that you have had that you're most proud of that you can share with us?
0: Oh, there are, there, there are lots. We're, we're lucky to work with a, um, you know a lot of big, complicated global enterprises and so on. It's like ranking your children. Uh, yeah. Well, and they all, it's like a Wes Anderson movie. They all, they're all different characters with different sort of strong personalities. Um, but, you know, I think we were lucky enough to work with VF Corporation, which is a, no one probably has heard of, but they're an enterprise that owns big brands like Vans, Timberland, the North Face. And they, we, we worked with them to help them really become a movement of movements. And what I mean by that is the, at the enterprise level, they're leading one movement, which is to enable, you know, sustainable active lifestyles for the betterment of people and planet. And they are really, it's about creating, you know, being sustainable and getting people out into the world in ways that better them. But then like that would be a movement of movement. So uh, Vans would have its own movement. Timberland would have its own movement, the North Face and so on and so on. So they were like arrows in its quiver. So I think of that project and, and it continues. We're still working with them in different ways um, fondly because For me, it's all about speed and scale. You have scale at a global enterprise like that, but you also have all these powerful levers of these brands that are making a difference out there in the world. And my great concern is, are we moving far enough, fast enough? Because even if you look at the latest or the final update on the IPCC report, which is this big climate report that comes out of the UN and and heads of state and so on, you know, we are probably going to miss this target of 1.5 degrees rise in temperature celsius temperature globally and we are currently on track for over 2 degrees celsius if not up to 2.5 degrees celsius the consequences of which irrespective of politics or wherever you live are really really serious for all of us and you're already seeing that with these very surprising you know weather patterns around the world and farmers who no longer can have arable land and and you know it's really going to affect everybody and so You know, I think of VF Corporation in the B2B world. I think about Avery Dennison that is a plastics and materiality company that is doing very, very exciting things. I also think of these disruptive startups that are looking at all of these problems as marketplace opportunities in disguise. And I would share that with your listeners. Every problem peculiar to your industry that is giving you a heartache or keeps you up at night, someone's going to solve for and have an extraordinary business as a result. So- There are those entrepreneurs that are going to thrive in the future purely because of the way they look at things and execute against it, as opposed to those who are trying to do what they've always done as the world gets you know, tougher around them.
1: We'll be back with the show shortly. I just want to let you in on a little secret. As you know, the win the day mentality is my life's work, and I've studied it for the last 15 years. During that time, I've helped thousands of people from all over the world to win in their career, in their relationships, and in their life. Well, for the last few months, I've been working behind the scenes on a special project with Success Magazine. For the first time ever, I'll be bringing you the exact blueprint that I've used to help the leaders of tomorrow to take their performance to the next level today. It's a self study course with videos, activities, and a detailed workbook so I can personally walk you through everything. It's also highly practical, results driven, and will transform your life like nothing else. Guaranteed. So if you're ready to win and win big, add your name to the wait list. Just go to jameswitt.com slash win. That's jameswitt.com slash win. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes and you'll be notified as soon as it's available. All right, let's get back to the show. When you're sitting down with these companies, what, mm-hmm. what is the lead with we formula that you take them through? Well, in its essence, lead with we is again another
0: expression of very simple but flexible messaging. And let me explain why. If you provide a solution, for how business can drive growth through impact that is all wonkish and intellectual and using terms that people don't understand, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. Even with leadership and employees, let alone with your customers out there. So Lead With We is designed to be very simple. You've got to choose to lead because not everybody chooses to lead. They want things to be fixed or they'll go second or they'll let somebody else do it or it's somebody else's problem. You have to actively choose to lead with which means with as many stakeholders as possible. So that includes leading with your suppliers, your employees, your customers, your competitors, cross-sector with nonprofits or whatever it might be. Lead with we. And we is to benefit the largest number of people, including the planet. Now, you could be in payroll um, of a small company and you can say, hey, I've got to make this decision about this or that. How do I choose to lead with we? It might be, how do I make sure my benefits serve my employees as best as possible so that they stay with us and that supports our business and this supports their health and well-being, for example. Or it might be R&D or it might be sales. So it's lead with we and then there are several layers to it. You've got to do it on an individual level. You've got to do it um, as a leadership level. You've got to do it inside your company culture. You've got to do it inside your brand community with your customers. And then you've got to actually have a positive impact at a societal level. So the simple formula is lead with we all the way up through those different levels so that you compound your positive impact, inspiring everyone to drive your growth at
1: the same time. Mm. There's an interesting statistic from your uh, new book that you mentioned uh, that 67% of consumers bought a brand for the first time because of its position Mm. on a controversial issue. There's been a lot of talk in the last few years about whether or not political stances and and Mm. political and social statements should be made in companies and sporting organizations. Do you feel like Every single company or sporting organisation should be open to including those things, even if it means ostracising a huge number of their fan base, especially in a world yeah. where it can be difficult for people to figure out what accurate information actually is.
0: Yeah, the accuracy of the information really muddies the water.
1: I mean, who knows what's true anymore? It's absolutely maddening. A bre- Brexit, an example. I mean, yeah. the people voting for Brexit, they're talking about economists can't even understand the full implications of that, sure. let alone the, the you know your average working class who might be voting for it. And
0: then you vote out of a motion or based on the latest ad, and then you come to yeah. regret it later on. But there'd be a two-part answer. I think, firstly, um, you need to make sure that whatever you stand up for is relevant and authentic to your business. And I think to, across all businesses, there are three issues which everyone has to address. A fair living wage, which is the number one concern of all Americans, according to Just Capital Research. You have to have some sort of sustainability profile where you're, you know, you're not making bad things that have bad impact. People don't want to see that anymore. And thirdly, um, you need to have some DNI, some sort of you know uh, diversity and inclusion policy. Even if a small company, you've you've got to do that. That's really table stakes now. But then you should commit to an issue that is relevant to your brand. Your brand, and by that I mean, if someone sees you standing up for that issue, they go, "Of course, that makes sense." Mm-hmm. If you're just jumping onto the latest bandwagon, that doesn't make sense. But to your larger question, should every company do it? I mean, that ship has sailed in the sense that if you've looked over the last few years, every company has been standing up around same-sex marriage, abortion, gun control, the war in Ukraine. I mean, you saw Starbucks, PepsiCo, Mm -hmm. McDonald's, um, all of them pulling out of Ukraine on the basis of their value, pulling um, out of Russia on the basis of their values. Which actually came at the cost of huge value to their business. Mm. But it was more valuable to them to be seen to stand up against sort of, you know, uh, such actions by um, Russia. So, yes, you do have to stand up on an issue. But you have to do those three that I mentioned first always, and then you need to find an issue that is really logical for your business. It's not about trying to speak to all things and just playing whack-a-mole with every
1: issue that's out there. Yeah, which is where the issue of uh, hijacking, like topic hijacking, where people are putting it out there for virtue signaling, and they get called out from their bullshit very, very quickly. I know you mentioned a few examples in your book. There's so many examples. (laughs) And
0: I think here's the thing, every conversation matures over time. And sustainability in ESG is one of those, which in ESG is environmental, social and governance, and it's, you know, how companies show that they're doing more harm and less harm and more good. There's a lot of people who didn't do it. There's a lot of people who did it, but they're only greenwashing. There are a lot of people who are doing it authentically, but only in half of their business, and the other half of their business is doing harm. And there are some leaders out there that are really re-engineering their whole business. And there's a shakeout as more and more people look at these issues and they look at what the companies are doing you know, the pretenders get called out. People say that ESG funds are BS and so on and so on. And then it'll get more serious. They'll get more rigor. They'll get more metrics around it and things will get better. So, you know, I think you've got to ask yourself who you are as a business owner. How can you manifest what you care about through your business? And how can you demonstrate integrity of intent and action in ways that will inspire people to work for you? In ways that will inspire people to buy your stuff and just as importantly, to talk about you to others. It's as simple as that. And that is absolutely timeless. But when you do that, here's the difference. Most small companies, like mine, like others, you don't have enough marketing resources. You don't have a deep marketing department. You don't have a huge advertising budget. So you have to inspire everyone to become an extension of your marketing department. How do you do that? You have a point of view that resonates with people emotionally, employees and customers, you demonstrate that through how your company acts, through the type of products you make, how you take them to market and you give them messaging that equips them to be an effective amplifier of what you're doing so that they talk about you on social, they share you with your friends and there are the examples of legion of brands out there where you just like what they're doing in the world because they're part of the solution rather than part of the problem.
1: Is the way that a company treats its staff one of the easiest and most visible ways of finding out whether that company actually cares? You know, I in LA where we live, there's yeah. been a lot of restaurants lately, more and more, that add like a 4% service charge sure. to look after all of their staff. And I love seeing that. When I yeah. see that, I'm like, this this restaurant actually cares about the people, which means they probably care about the food and all of the diners yeah. and everyone else. Patagonia, don't they have a thing that like when the surf's up, we don't want to oh, see yeah. you in the office, They do. go surfing. I, yeah. I love things like that. So yeah. that, how they treat their staff, is that such a big indicator of how much they care about every
0: other stakeholder? I think it's it's like the canary in the coal mine in that if you're not doing it well, you're going to get called out. And you'll notice that it used to be consumer or media activism that would be called out by a brand. But now it's the employees that call them out. Think about Amazon and Google and Apple and Facebook. In the last couple of years, all of their employees have called them out. You know, McKinsey, one of the biggest consulting firms in the world, 1,200 of their employees wrote an open letter to their own company saying, stop enabling the biggest polluters in the world. Your own employees will expose you if you're not careful. At the same time, if you look at your P&L, if you're a company of any size, five employees, and you look at your little P&L every week or every month, the biggest line item is usually your payroll. So it makes sense to invest in the human capital that show up every day to make your business possible. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep them happy so they stay because, as you know, with the great resignation and quiet quitting and conscious quitting these days you know, for $3,000 extra, someone will leave and go somewhere else because they just don't feel connected to your company anymore.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You've mentioned purpose a few times today. What are the biggest mistakes companies make with their, you know, creating and broadcasting their purpose?
0: I think there's, there's so many, but I'll give you three. One is they're doing it, but they're not doing it with integrity or they're not doing it authentically. I think a lot of companies feel like that's one of the sort of boxes they've got to tick these days. And so they may define it but it's not a static noun that sits there on an annual report or or you paint on the wall. It's an active verb that needs to animate the company. So you've got to put it to work for your business. And in this really difficult market today where every three months there's some other challenge, it won't only help you decide what to do, it'll help you decide what not to do. Because if it's not aligned with your purpose, you shouldn't be doing it. Secondly, a lot of companies out there, when they're being purposeful, talk about it in a self-directed way. They'll say, we're company X and this is how we make our products and this is what we're doing and here's our volunteer hours and look at what we've done and here's all the meals we did for the after-school program or whatever it might be. And it falls on deaf ears because ultimately they're just talking about themselves Mm -hmm. rather than getting off themselves and onto others. And The way I like to think of this is you need to be the celebrant of your community, not the celebrity. Mm -hmm. Celebrate your employees. Celebrate your customers. Celebrate your partners. The content you create, the marketing you create, the digital and social—you know—content you create will be completely different, and they'll pay attention because it's about them, and they will share it because it's about them. Because no one really wants to hear anything other than it's really about them. I mean, yeah. it's a silly, as silly as as we all know. The what's in it for me? For what the, the what the what's in it for me? And then ultimately, I think you know the third thing I'd say about uh, purpose is. Companies of all sizes, especially smaller companies, are failing to leverage collaboration and partnerships. You cannot do it all on your own. And the problems we're solving for are very large, whether it's problems in your local community, your state, country, you know, nationwide or around the world. So think about how on the strength of your purpose, you can find other partners, even competitors who could work with you because their mission or values aligned, level up the whole industry and double down on the resonance and reach that you're getting through partnership. I think one of the biggest mistakes with entrepreneurs is they try doing it on their own. And they almost pride themselves on sort of hacking it out of a granite cliff (laughs) on their own. Right out of the gate, find partners that really kind of align with what you care about and then go to work
1: together. Yeah, so true. I love yeah. that. You didn't get where you are today by hearing the word, no, I'm sure you got no, but if you had to get oh a lot God. of yeses on the way of getting there. What do you focus on to get a yes in the most important conversations that you've had to go through? Like, Do you have a blueprint or a template that you're using sure. when you're sitting down with maybe a prospective client to to get them on board with, with your vision that will eventually become a vision for the two of you?
0: Well, one thing I'd share that hopefully will help folks here is a and I was a pitch doctor for a long time in my freelance career where you'd actually go in and have to fix the pitches (laughs) of agencies or companies to get what they wanted. So that was a core skill. You often have to win over a new customer or client who is hesitant or unsure if they want to make the investment in whatever you're offering. And there's three things that you should do. The first thing is you should look at the data in and around what you're doing. So in our case, if you really want to help companies understand what their purpose is or bring their ESG or sustainability commitments to life or really have some impact work out there, what does the data tell them in terms of attracting the talent you want, fostering a strong culture, you know, inspiring conscious consumers to buy, the market, buy your product, differentiating your reputation in the marketplace, research. The second thing is look at the competitive landscape. So say, you know, whoever you're talking to, say, listen, just as context, here's what your competitors are doing in this area. And that triggers their competitive instinct. They go, well, wait a second. If our company competitor X is doing it, either they're idiots or there might be something here. And then the third thing, and this is the most important, is to do a cost benefit analysis where you say, if you're going to do this, if you're going to buy our product, if you're going to work with us, if you're going to be a partner, what is the cost of doing that? But also what's the cost of not doing that? And do a cost-benefit analysis of the cost of not doing it, which might be you're not relevant to the marketplace. A competitor takes a greater market share. And as soon as you sort of triangulate the research that supports what you're doing, competitors pointing in that direction, and a cost benefit analysis of actually doing it, but also not doing it, invariably I've found a client will be or prospective client will be like, Maybe let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Or, you know, I'd like to understand more. And very quickly, you can unlock them. And because you have, to, you have to talk to people in terms of what they're willing to listen to. And what potential buyers are willing to listen to today is cost consciousness. Or if you're a B2B company, how are you going to be, you know, how are you going to deliver you know, productivity and performance for my business? You've got to start with what they're going to listen to. And so show them the research, showing them competitors, show them a cost benefit analysis,
1: and then upgrade them from there. If you're listening and watching this right now and you didn't write that down, go back and rewind. That just might be a million dollar benefit for your business through everything Simon just went there. That is phenomenal.
0: Yeah, and we've, you know, we've used I have been in so many hostile rooms all around the world <laughs> in Asia, in London, in UK, even I mean, with the Aussie you know, accent, even with, oh yeah yeah, <laughs> especially in the UK, they're like made guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, go right? back to the land of convicts, yeah yeah, exactly. You <laughs> know where did you come from again? And uh, but and in the states where there's a frowny faced CFO or someone you know who's got really a lot of pressure on you know their bottom line and so on, and they know they need to do something, but they're not convinced. Um, the cost benefit analysis of not doing it is probably the most powerful tool you can use, because think about it. People don't want to ignore research because then that just shows they're not paying attention. People don't want to ignore competitors because they're not really being competitive. People do not want to ignore the downside, the risk to their business. If you ignore all of those three, basically the person you're talking to is saying, We're not listening to what's going on. We don't care what our competitors are doing and we don't care what happens. And, you know, it really helps to move things forward. Yeah, turn the lights off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if that's the way you're going to do business, you're putting yourself out of
1: business. (laughs) What about this whole lead with we philosophy in the home? Have you taken that in there and, and, and thought about how this could actually impact people in their home and the family unit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the great challenges of this moment in time is how quickly people go from denial to doom in the sense that they go, oh, nothing's wrong and the future's all going to be fine, or I don't believe in the climate crisis or whatever else it might be, to, oh my God, it's too late and there's nothing I can do. The fact is, we got into this mess together and I'm to blame and you're to blame. I bought groceries with plastic. I drove a combustion engine car. I had a meat-based diet. I put invested my money in a bank that was then investing it elsewhere in companies that were you know, harming the planet. Every one of those seemingly innocent people actions by me and you and everyone else watching this, unbeknownst to us, have all combined to this mess we're in. Carbon in the air, chemicals in the soil, plastics in the ocean, and, a f- and headlines that scare us every day when we open up our phones. In the same way, we've got to get out of this mess together. And the only way we're going to do it is when each and every one of us change what they're doing. So I'll give you some examples and just my own personal life. You know, we made sure that wherever we invest our money, we're now doing it with folks who have really become very transparent about the impact of that and how they're giving back. Um, we moved banks because we didn't believe in what was going on um, in the banks. Just the business we, the companies we bank, uh, the, the banks we use for uh, my company. I have a wooden toothbrush. We compost at home. At the company, we volunteer um, once a quarter, and all of our work is working with you know um, purposeful companies. We do pro bono work. We've just finished doing it with an organization called Freedom United in the UK around modern slavery, and we're doing some work with this Pachamama Alliance that I mentioned earlier on. You know, every single action you take, however small and unseen, is a small lever of positive change if you see it that way. And so, I would encourage all of us to go. You know what? This future is compromised and we're going to have to mitigate or moderate how bad things are going to get. And we're all going to have to show up to that end. And I'll say one more thing about this. If you think that sounds unrealistic because we're all selfish fools that want our latte two seconds later when we go into a Starbucks, look at COVID. You know, In February of 2020, if you told me that trillions of dollars would be wiped off the stock market Almost companies companies all around the world would send home their employees and allow them to work remotely. People would re-engineer their supply chains to make ventilators and PPE equipment. You never would have believed it. Mm-hmm. Yet a few weeks later, that happened. And in a moment of crisis, we come together in ways that were, we're unimaginable before. We are living in a state of constant crisis now. It's one thing after another. And that, that temperature, that water that where the frog, you know, in the boiling water is going to increase. And we're going to be forced to show up differently. And I believe all of us are going to start to make more and more conscious choices because
1: we realize we have to and we're all we're all on the hook. Mm, so true. Uh is there a book that contributed most to the mindset you have today? Or skills in business or anything like that?
0: Is there a book that con- um you know, I'm an avid reader and there's a, a, a lot of books, you know, and I'm one of those people that forgets that they've ordered a book. So I, I, the worst I've ever done is I've had five copies of the same book, forgetting <laughs> that I've ordered it um, four times before. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that there's one, there are many. I think um, one of the one of the defining qualities of an entrepreneur is their ability to stay relevant to the marketplace. And so I'm constantly ordering books and we're all time poor and I don't use those audio things or anything. And I just scan through them as I go through at night and and read them very quickly. But I would say the whole lineage of books that ever since Buckminster Fuller in the 1950s have really pointed to the consequences of the way that we're doing business, have all informed what I'm doing. And I want to sort of point to something here. It's very easy for us all to be pessimistic about the future or feel anxious and so on. But here's how I see it. We're in a car and we're hurtling towards a cliff. And we've been doing that since the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s and 2010, knowing full well whether you're a oil and gas company and not telling us what's going on or whether you're someone who's read everything from Buckminster Fuller to others on the way through, that this is going to come home to roost at some point, these consequences. And here we are, You know, at some point it's going to, we're going to run out of rope. And here we are running out of rope and we're about to go over the cliff. We've got this existential crisis and we have to throw the wheel of that car 90 degrees. And everyone is complaining that we have to grab the wheel so hard, so fast and turn it so quickly. And we're all gnashing our teeth and wringing our hands. And why do we have to change? And what do you mean I have to use an alternative energy vehicle or God knows, or change my diet or God knows what? The good news is the first 15 degrees of that 90 degree turn is the hardest because the G forces want to pull you back to the way you've been headed really fast for a really long time, straight over that cliff. But the second 15 degrees, from 15 to 30 degrees, get a little bit easier because there's less G forces pulling you back. From 30 to 60 degrees, the market forces start to take on a life of their own, and it starts to get easier. From 60 to 90 degrees, you look back and go, how could it have ever been any other way? And we are just in the middle of that first 15 degrees, but more hands are on the wheel every day, more partnerships, coalitions, collaborations you know to really course-correct our future, and we will get there, but now is the time to show up as meaningfully as possible. But this is not the end of something. It's the beginning of a business renaissance that will absolutely transform our future. It just feels tough right now.
1: Yeah, I was recently in Hawaii at the Disney Resort mm-hmm. Alani there, and it was so nice to see all of the biodegradable packaging there because right. it's right on the ocean. And all you could yeah. think about previously was how many tons of plastic would get washed out each day. Oh,
0: mate, I cannot tell you. Like you know, I surf a little bit. I'm like a man, old man, drowning out there. So you know, I don't want to sound <laughs> you like you me both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the young guys are like, "Hey, dude, you need it? Shall I call someone for you?" Anyway, anyway, I was sitting out. The surf, so I was down, down the coast here um, uh, at San Clemente surfing one day by the pier. And I was in the sunset was going down. And we're all sitting out there having a really kind of nice moment, just really appreciating where we were. And this trash was just floating in and around me. And I picked it up and I was taking it with me and taking it. And the other surfers' guys were looking at me, all shaking our heads and just so royally pissed off. And even when I was in the Amazon at Christmas, I was there and I went out on a little canoe paddle in the early in the morning because you do bird watching in the morning and stuff. And I got somewhere, and it's this pristine, pristine, pristine place. And there was a plastic bottle just perched there, the only one you could see anywhere. But you know, you know only too well that this is just how it begins, and so on. And so, um, you know, we just we just have to show up differently. We all give a damn. We all are worried about our future. We all have kids or people we love who are going to inherit. You know, the planet that we're sort of compromised. So now's
1: the time to show up differently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, final question before the win the day rocket round. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? Show myself on my worst day. You know, we all are on a very
0: personal journey. You know, the interior life that we have and the challenges we face. So I I think it's peculiar to any one's person's journey and a particular moment in time. But um I have found allowing myself to to pause and to get on my breath, because I think we're very breathless in the way that we live. We, we always mm-hmm. carry ourselves. We're tense. We're anxious. We hold our breath up in our chest and certainly not in our diaphragm. Connecting to our breath and then connecting to nature as a way to kind of restore yourself. Because I think most of us these days live in a mild or acute state of hysteria. hysteria. Mm-hmm. We don't even know it. We are caffeinating ourselves. We are going from Zoom call to Zoom call. We're looking at headlines all the time. We're farming our content across across social media. We're trying to keep up with a fast-changing and challenging marketplace, you know, and we're going and going and going and going. And I think we're almost become desensitized to the state in which we're living all the time. So I always caution and counsel myself to stop, to really get back onto my breath and my belly, and to reconnect to nature and allow that to ground me, and then to look at things with clear eyes, and that's something I found very, very powerful. Okay. There, yeah, that's so good.
1: Uh, let's jump over to the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some quick answers. Are we Whoa. up for this one, Simon? Here we go. <laughs> Number one: What quote inspires you the most? There's a Renee
0: Rilke quote that you know: "I will not live a life unlived," which I have always really liked, you know, I find the entrepreneurship journey really hard and there's been many times I've wanted to give up and i kind of keep like every other ambitious clueless Aussie beating my head against so many walls and doors around the world. I don't know why we do it, Um, but I will never regret not uh, showing up. I will never regret giving it a go and pitting myself against challenges. And so I think that's, I, I I want to live my life, and I will not live a life unlived. Could you ever go back to the corporate world? I'm, I find it very hard to work for somebody else, only because you know it becomes addictive, that independence and self-determination, the taste, <laughs> taste of freedom. It comes at a price that you've got to wear the consequences of bad decisions, but you also get the upside of your own decision. And I also think you know, being an entrepreneur is where you reach some point in life where, rightly or wrongly, you feel like you've got something to give it a go, mm. and you don't want to rob yourself of that. So I don't, I, I, I don't think so. Maybe one day, well, I'll have a, a partner and we scale our business through somebody else, but that have to be very mission aligned with what we care about. Mm. Uh, number two, morning coffee or evening wine? My strategy, and I, I, I always study people and what they do. Um, I think it's the CEO of Google who, um, he has tea in the morning. So I'll have hibiscus tea, which is sort of good for your blood and all that sort of thing. And then I do a, a Zen in the middle of every day where I'll do a 16 minute either meditation or nap, where um, I, I restore myself and i will have a coffee after that to push through the afternoon. And I'll share with you why, because we wear many hats in life and they bleed into each other. I used to find that I'd, I'd go to work and I'd push and push and push and give my best and leave it on the field. And by the time I got home, I'd be quite tired and I wouldn't be my best self. I'd be tired and grumpy. You get home to the kids and it's six, seven o'clock, or whatever. And all you want to do is just chill and you're kind of, you know, really spent. But now what I do is I go through halfway through the day, and I've have it built into my calendar by my EA, who's great. I step away for 20 minutes, and I recharge myself. So I'm only half depleted, then I recharge. And by the end of the day, I'm sort of half depleted again, and I can bring more of my best self when I get home. And I've been doing that for about six years. And it's not only made me a lot happier, it's, it's been really good for the relationships in my life.
1: It feels so sad, doesn't it, when you're so exhausted from the end of the working day yeah. trying to squeeze every minute that you can and yeah. then you've got nothing to give you've to got your kids. You're to so give. irritable and frustrated. Yeah. And, and-, and
0: I mean, any dad or mum who says they never feel that way isn't being honest with themselves because we all get absolutely knackered. Yeah. And we go home and we, don't even, we can't even communicate what we're going through and all the stresses and relationships you're managing and trying to show up well for everyone else as a leader or whatever else. And you've got to take care of yourself. So I highly recommend stepping away for 20 minutes each day. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Number three, what's one bit of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self?
0: My 18-year-old self, I mean, I think a lot of people would say this, but know that you are enough. And I've said this to my daughters, you know, spend your time exploring what you're curious about to find that purest expression of all your innate gifts. Because I spent, it wasn't until I was 44, Until Or at 42, I really started to lean into who I am. And I wish I hadn't wasted that time, but no one had really given me the belief in myself Mm. or I didn't find that belief outright in myself. Um, So if you're 18, 20, 21, 22, go like hell. Mm. like Invest in yourself and know that you are enough. And I spent my life going into tough rooms with smart people in lofty positions just to see if I could give it a go and hold my own. And what I learned is they're all just like us. They're mums and dads and they're all exhausted and they're trying to lead a normal life and they're just like one wine away from breaking down and crying. So there's nothing to learn. The only thing you need to do is get clear about who you are and what you care about and your purpose and just to show up every day with integrity around that and just follow that journey. Mm. Uh, Number four, what book do you gift the most? selfishly, as an author, (laughs) lead with we, now available on Amazon. And that's quite true. I've been trying to get it out there. Like, as anybody knows, you don't make any money out of selling books, even with best selling books, which I've been lucky enough to have. You know, by the time you really factor in what you've invested and all these sorts of things, you know, you're, you're upside down every time but my great ambition is to really take the last 13 years of work that we've done with companies of all sizes and all the secrets that we've used to give them success and all that sort of thing and give this step by step plan that companies of all sizes can use and that's why I did a book so I do mm-hmm. I'm giving away the book all the time and I'm giving it to executives and and all these sorts of things just so that they don't have to waste 13 years mm-hmm. doing it so Selfishly, I would have to say lead with me if it's an honest answer. <laughs> is there
1: is there a book recently that's not your own that you've read that really resonated with you?
0: You know, um I read everything from, you know, um regional, you know, biological roadmaps for the Amazon because of climate, which maybe other people don't <laughs> don't read um all the way to The Art of Doing Nothing, which is, you know, an interesting book. The book I'm reading right now is a book called How Forests Think. And the point of this book is this. We as human beings have, through semiotics and symbolism and so on, identified about our way of being in the world. We've ascribed language and meaning to everything we see and do. Our arrogance is that we presume that everything else on the planet sees things the same way. And what this author did was he went and spoke to shaman and lots of other folks from indigenous tribes and asked how they see the world from their sp- perspective, with all the wisdom of these indigenous tribes built over centuries, and it's a very different way of looking at things. You hear it with the Aborigines in Australia, with Dreamtime, and and so on, and vari- variations depending on which region of the world you're in. And what that really showed me is that you know, you know how we f- see the world is really what we see, mm-hmm. and that we need to see things differently. Because I'm very passionate about what business and humanity needs to do differently to better serve the planet so the planet can serve us. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm reading right right now. Mm-hmm. Number five, was there a vulnerability you
1: once hid within that became your superpower?
0: A vulnerability. I think I'm very sensitive and that has allowed me to have strong IQ, EQ, um, in terms of understanding clients' pain points, being an effective communicator as a speaker or as an author. Um, I used to uh, – being an Australian, as you know, Australian male, we like to think we're a hearty bunch. We're pretty <laughs> tough as nails, you know. You're always having a beer and, you know, there's no such thing as therapy. You, you go to the <laughs> pub and your mate says, get over it and you're done. Yet on the inside, I was really a values-driven, kind of artsy sort of guy who gave a damn. And I think that sensitivity and vulnerability is a positive thing. And I, I'm much more comfortable sharing that with people now. And I think that is a permission slip for other people To be the same way, and whether you're on stage talking to people and you're sharing vulnerably, or whether you're seeing a client and you're talking to them about, and they say how things, and you go, "Oh, it's not that good," and you and you tell them why, and they're like, "Oh my god," it gets real really quickly, Mm. and that's much more a better use of time. Mm. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? One thing I've learned about failure, you know, I think failure is hard, but I've learned that it is a lesson waiting to be unlocked. And there's been several times in my life and career where I've fallen really, really hard and taken it personally and pointed the finger and blamed everybody else and really struggled to emotionally process it. And I think I was looking at it the wrong way. And this sounds a little pretentious, but net, net, this is where it came to, which is you need to look for the lesson that you're being taught. You know, I think I really deeply believe in life that you keep getting served up the same lesson until you learn it. And failure is just another name for you know gifts in disguise, if you're willing to look at it that way. And so I really look at failure now, this is only recently, I really look at failure and say, what am I being taught here? What am I not seeing? What 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 do I need to pay attention to? And not to rush to judgment, but to be patient with it. And see if I can, whether it's going out to nature, going for a surf, stepping away from it, talking to others, whatever, going, what's really going on here? And using that as a positive thing. And I tell you, when you see it as a positive, it's like when people say, if you've had a hard relationship and you lean into the hurt, you'll always be hurt. But if you lean into the healing and the lesson, then you can move beyond it. And I think if you really look to the lesson with failure, then you can see it in a positive sense
1: and actually take strength from it. Mm, For sure. Uh, number seven. If you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? You know, I am a a, a
0: great student and fan of the power of language. Um, it's something I've always been in love with as an author and so on. But even in my own private time, I drive people nuts all the time. My <laughs> friends and everything. I, I just I'm always head in the clouds. And anyway, um, the point being, um, I would. I'm. I've spent a lot of time looking into orators and writers. I really respect. And I think, you know, Dr. King was amazing, Um, JFK Jr. was amazing, and um, I think uh, the former President Barack Obama was amazing, for different reasons. And it was interesting, when I wrote my first book, I was lucky enough to go to the House of Commons in the UK and be part of an event, an impact event, and as I was walking back through the House of Commons and kindly my book was given to the attendees there, um, this woman walked up to me and, and she said, Simon, I got a copy of your book and I had a look and I I want to give it back to you. And I was like, okay, that was quick. And no refunds. Yeah, not a, did I get my money back? Is this like a sale or a refund? What? And um, she wrote, Dear Simon, thank you for keeping my father's words alive and for flying the standard, Dr. Bernice King. And it was Dr. King's only surviving daughter. Wow. And that was because in the epilogue, I had quoted Dr. King in terms of his I Have a Dream speech, but built on it in terms of what was happening for African-Americans at the time is really symptomatic of what's happening globally. And that for me as an Australian who had no business talking about capitalism at large, let alone American culture of such significance as that, to have that moment with Dr. King's daughter was a full circle moment that was really special for me. Mm, Yeah, yeah,
1: amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or business? My executive assistant. No. <laughs>
0: what tool or resource?
1: Um, hey, that counts. A- no,
0: it, it is. But I think, as like I'm 56 now, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs build their business at the cost of their happiness and their health. But I think my the priority I give to balance now and my health and doing things that give me joy in life, like surfing, mm. is actually the driver of my business. Mm. I think. You know, i I use it through a speaking analogy. You know, I, I've done a lot of speaking and I used to always be on. I always was almost subconsciously trying to prove to myself that I could always be the guy that they wanted to be when you're up in a room full of thousands of people presenting. But then I was always depleting my energy. And over the last five plus years, I've, I'm always trying to be off. So I know because I'm confident that I can be the person they need me to be when I need to do that, but I'm always reserving my energy the rest mm. of the time. And so I think it's really powerful to to look at your energy and how to throttle it and how to manage it and in that sense, I'm now using my health and well-being as
1: a driver of my business. In that sense, yeah, it's so interesting. I noticed in the last couple of years with a shift to virtual meetings, I'm wiped after video oh, yeah. calls. I don't know what yeah. it is. It's like exhausted. So I'm, I, you know, I've been taking a lot more audio calls, right. even like coaching people because it's, yeah. it's just far. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm at my best rather than it's just so energy draining on Maybe. video. Yeah.
0: If you had to design torture you're gonna you're gonna make someone stare at a brightly lit screen for eight or nine or ten hours a day staying focused and on point and concentrated five days a week yeah that is called a form of torture for sure and we've all been doing it for years and I get the end of the day and I'm like my eyes are like you know I'm like you're just so exhausted by yeah. the energy the, how you focus your energy through that pinhole camera. Mm how your senses are taking on all that light and information all the time and often how sedentary Mm -hmm. you are and how static that life is. I think our lives are all a lot smaller than they used to be as opposed to this expansive real-world existence we have. Not only are we fractured across all these different avatars of ourselves across social media, but our lives are so far removed from nature outright but the social aspect that we used to have. And I think all of that comes at a great cost that we're not, we're not even fully appreciative of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. One thing on my bucket list. I am quite passionate about going to special places that, um, according to indigenous people around the world, have great significance to them. Like for example, Uluru, Mm -hmm. Ayers Rock. My wife just went there in the last month. I, I think and, you know, I was actually I got a friend, Rick Ridgeway at Patagonia, and he has scaled the seven highest mountains in the world, and he was part of the team, was the first team of Americans to scale K2. And I asked him, why do you go to the the most harsh places in the world? And in the same way, why do I want to go to these places? I want to see what nature looks like in its purest form before we messed it up. There is so much energy and power and beauty and significance and meaning to these preserved and pristine places that are, you know, epicenters for these indigenous um, nations, tribes, people that I want to, I want to experience that. I I really want. So it's not about going to some snooty hotel and having Mm. a cocktail by the pool. It's like, go to somewhere where you you hear it from all of your friends or someone who went on a trip, like, oh my God, this place was amazing. Mm. It just felt different. It was, I want to see that. And I, you know, I don't know how old all your listeners are, but you know, as you get into your 50s and 60s, you're like, oh, no, you know, as your parents and the next generation are passing, you're like, holy crap, we're the next cab off the ring. We're going to get out there and have a look <laughs> at what's going on. And I want to see these places. Yeah, love yeah. it. Uh, final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? What's one thing I do to win the day? I, uh, you know, I'm constantly challenging myself to be a better leader. Like the more and more things have been challenging in the last few years, and there's been many difficult moments for all of us. I'm very quick to reflex and go, okay, how can I show up better in this moment? And like the team may be down, or there might be some really sort of dark news out on the news, or it might just be general weariness for everyone. I'm always challenging myself to go, okay, what does everyone need here? And how can I make sure that everyone leaves this interaction the way that I'd want them to feel? And therefore, how do I need to be in that? And I think so I'm less self-indulgent. Um, and I'm more present to the role I
1: can play in difficult moments. Mm, Love it. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Simon, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can visit his website, simonmannering.com. Connect with him on Instagram at Simon Mannering and grab a copy of his new book, Lead With We, on Amazon. Again, all that and more will be linked in the show notes. Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you. And I just want to sort of leave with one other note, which would be, you know, if you want to learn from hundreds of entrepreneurs, from startups to, you know, large global leading brands. I do this podcast called Lead With We where I interview them. And I only do that so you can understand how they get it done. So Lead With We, it's a podcast in all those places, Apple, Google and Spotify. And there's also a course called LeadWithWeCourse.com, dot com. Lead with Course com that really lays out in sort of a video format how people can put Lead With We to work for their business. And this is all about growth at a time we also need impact. And 13 years of experience that just poured into it so you don't have to do you don't have to run the miles yourself so thank you thank you
1: I love it thank you thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win the Day podcast we want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today so drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway any questions you have or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode And if you found value in the Win the Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win the Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.